The past 30 years of television has been about anything. It's been about specialization. While ESPN has, of course, been the granddaddy of specialized programming, you can watch nothing but sci-fi or old movies or cartoons and, of course, food. Food programming like sports has had a cultural impact far beyond the screen. The Food Network, like ESPN, has both shaped our perception and married it with our culture in ways that give us both celebrities and food. What better combination for 21st century America? We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Alan Salkin. His journalism has appeared in the New York Times, New York Magazine, The Village Voice, and Details. He produces and stars in video interviews of food celebrities for a variety of websites. And he's the author of the book, From Scratch, The Uncensored History of the Food Network. Alan Salkin, thanks so much for joining us. It's a treat, Jeff. Great to have you here. One of the things you talk about is that when the Food Network started back in 1993, it really wasn't about food as much as it was about finding new ways to make money from television. Talk about that. If you remember those halcyon days, there was only 30 channels on the cable dial. Not everybody even had cable. And they knew they were going to the 500-channel universe, as they said. So all kinds of crazy ideas were being tried. There was uh, a project for a psychology network, which some of us, I think, would benefit from. <laughs> there was a 24-hour pet channel being talked about. Uh, the problem with that being that pets do not make their own purchase decisions about um, cars and cruise vacations, so that didn't work. But, um, you know, it was realized that food, there was a lot of magazines about it, and this may be something that would work. So these guys at a uh, cable provider out in Providence, Rhode Island, called Colony, cooked up um, the idea for a food network. And it was thought by many investors to be a very bad idea that this would never work, but they got just enough money and enough, you know, carriage on the cable dial to give it a shot. They hired somebody named Reese Schoenfeld, who was the founding president of CNN also, to uh, run it. You know, when Reese and his wife, Pat, were great New Yorkers, they'd had their kitchen removed for more space. All they had was a cabinet um, with uh, a coffee maker and dog food, which is, of course, all you really need in life. <laughs> um, and so, you know, this was a business play. This was, let's see what we can throw up there. And, you know, as I still say, uh, Food Network's mission is not, it has become, and it you know, the subtext is it teaches people to cook, but its its fundamental mission is not to teach people to cook or, you know, celebrate Guy Fieri's, you know, cleverness in the Camaro. It is to sell people Toyota Corollas and breath mints, you know, and um, vacations. So that is that was the start, and it was run at an incredibly low budget um, for many, many years and lost money for many years before it became the monster that it is now. In fact, it lost money for at least 10 years before it turned any kind of a profit at all. Reese, Reese Schoenfeld, the president, you know, got people to sign on to this idea that they would not charge for uh, viewers. In other words, there'd be no, um, you know, ESPN collects from cable companies now about $5 per subscriber, which is one of the reasons people are you know getting rid of their cable it's so expensive but you know food network's plan was we're going to we're going to have such a good channel we're going to run it at such a low cost that we won't need this this uh, subscriber fee well that was very uh difficult business plan um advertising was barely enough uh it, it was it wasn't really until emerald live in 1997 that they started getting any cultural traction 
And, you know, if you watch them alive, those old original episodes now, it's amazing to see how excited people were, the audience, the live audience. They had a band, you know, it was this new kind of cooking show. People were so excited to see a grown man throw garlic on something. It was liberating in a way that, like, Elvis, you know, swinging his hips on TV in the 50s was liberating. It wasn't really until the breakthrough of Iron Chef, you know, Japan, which created this sort of prime time idea that you could have cooking competition. And then really 9-11, which, you know, created a new appetite for a way back into the kitchen, along with uh, scripts, the parent company's ability to finally start charging subscriber fees that, that put the network into the black. To what extent did Julia Child swinging a chicken around a kitchen sort of provide the underpinnings for what some of these people were trying to do? You know, even Julia recognized, and she was interviewed when, and she was on Food Network in its earliest days, and she was interviewed about, you know, well, it's so lowbrow, they, you know, they're, they've got a band, this isn't, and she said, you know, you've got to entertain people. It's got to be fun to watch, and she understood that. And, you know, it, if Julia Child was not such a big personality with a funny voice, and you know, Julia Child would be a star on TV now. You know, you can't. You got to watch her. She's weird, and I think that that idea. You know, the 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 melding, as you said, a personality with some cooking chops. You know, personality is more important than how well you can you know butterfly a chicken, um, and so. I think Julia and the Frugal Gourmet and the Galloping Gourmet and even going back to the 50s with Deani Lucas and James Beard who had these cooking shows, you know, they they created the genre. But the belief that this genre could do more than, you know, be publicly sponsored or, you know, run for half an hour a day on a network was not believed until this crazy experiment, you know, of Food Network. And it, it just shows you how technology kind of drives the art. It, it creates what's possible. It, the technology played another interesting role in that, as you talk about, a lot of the early Food Network stuff wasn't necessarily geared for people that cook. It was entertainment. It was really later on when the web came into play and people could watch this and then look up a recipe online yeah. that, that it began to have a totally different component. Well, in the early days, you have to, there was an address at the end of the show and you could you send in a self-addressed stamped envelope. <laughs> right. Remember those? Sure. Um, to get the recipes. And it caught, and, you know, it, the network was spending hundreds of thousands of dollars a year on postage. And this is actually how they were getting their ratings, too. They were such a small network, they weren't getting rated by Nielsen, so they could tell which shows were the most popular by how many recipe requests were coming in. It was, it was pretty rinky-dink. But, um, yeah, the first hosts they had were, you know, Robin Leach of Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous um, had a talk show. He had a lot of interesting guests, like Nora Ephron was on once, making spaghetti. Um the first lady of New York City at that time, Donna Hanover Giuliani, mm -hmm. had a food news show with David Rosengarten. And so um, it, it really wasn't until this sort of, you know, the, the network realized that it really was a good cocktail to be able to, you know, watch the show as entertainment, but um, give people a web address that would allow them, you know, it seems so obvious now, but this was they were inventing all this as they went along. They didn't, you know, Websites used to cost a hundred grand to start, and uh, the Food Network was just because of the need to save postage. Created one of the first recipe websites on the web in, in the in the mid nineties.
To what extent did other cable activity at the time, you know, ESPN perhaps being the penultimate example, to, to what extent did that influence what the people at the Food Network were trying to do as they watched what others were doing? Well, you know, ESPN has, you know, quickly realized, and that, you know, there's a great oral history of that, mm-hmm. and it's a great business story also, but, you know, sports people will do anything to watch a sport, you know, they'll pay anything and it's a killer, it's killer programming, but, and the, the personality and the, 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 of, um, you know, sports center and the, the bigness and the, the entertainment value that was added, I think influenced food network. But I think more importantly, um, you know, ESPN found a lot of kinds of programming that they could put on, um, that would work. And what Food Network did ultimately was, you know, in, in Northern California, in, um, with Chez Panisse, and, and in Chicago with Charlie Trotter, and New York with some influential restaurateurs, there was this kind of, you know, food revolution, the California cuisine movement, American food that was happening in the 70s and really the 80s. Um, was happening, but it was not spreading. It was almost like, you know, they talk about chefs are the new rock stars. If you think about blues music, you know, it was happening in the Delta, but it took the technological change of the transistor radio, the electric guitar, the long playing record, and television to spread the news about blues and turn it into rock and roll. And Food Network takes this sort of nascent American art form of cooking and an American kind of cuisine that was pioneered mostly Japanese, um, and spreads this gospel using the, the, you know, television and showmanship and the, the new reach of, of, um, cable TV and, and, you know, creates just like rock and roll became the dominant art form for the last 20 years. Food has been most people's, artistic obsession in new york it's all anybody talks about what did where'd you eat did you try the fried chicken here um it, you know it, it it is the american art form of the moment maybe fading but it certainly has been all you have to do is look at the amount of photographs phone photographs that are taken yeah. of food today to really get a sense of exactly what you're talking about yes and i have to say i'm guilty of that <laughs> um you know it's there's it's it's in some ways, the oldest show, the second oldest show on earth, is watching somebody cook and, and looking at something beautiful. You know, you get to consume it; it's a visceral pleasure. Um, and it, you know, without yeah, without pictures of, of food on a plate, I don't know if Instagram would stay in business. It's true. But you know, Food Network, Food Network itself is having is having trouble with this new world. You know, where when it started, this wasn't the case. There was no Yelp. You know, if you wanted to learn about food, you had to watch Food Network pretty much or some stuff on PBS and a couple other shows here and there. But now, you know, people want to know what's the best meatball in their town. They don't necessarily need to know what's happening on cable TV at a studio in New York that was taped six months ago. And so, you know, with Yelp and with things like Tastemade, where you can make your own food review video on your phone or whatever else, um... I'm not being paid to tout them, by the way. But, um, you know, Scripps just today announced a buyout. Scripps is the parent company of Food Network. You know, announced some retirement buyouts. And, you know, the the business is changing. And how they're going to ride this next wave of technology is very unclear. 
The other thing that is interesting in the Food Network history was the rise of these women celebrities on Food Network. Talk about that. Well, you you know, Rachel Ray's show debuts, uh, 30-Minute Meals debuts after 9-11, sort of by chance. And this show, which helps people, you know, who, who are, first of all, Rachel was not a chef. Rachel Ray was just a, you know, a girl who grew up helping her mom who was managing Howard Johnson's restaurants. And so Rachel was working, you know, at one point as a candy apple counter in the basement of Macy's department store in New York. And, um, but eventually get this little, uh, attempt at 30 minute meals that happens to debut November, 2001, and really shows people the way back into the kitchen in a very simple way. You don't have to know how to make a, you know, a Bernays sauce to cook Rachel Ray's meals. Um, and so with the success of that show at that time, the perfect moment for that kind of simple cooking show, which by the way, Emeril Lagasse, you know, thought they should not have people like Rachel. He thought this was a channel for chefs. Um, but with her success, you start getting people like Paula Dean arriving, mm-hmm. Giada De Laurentiis, the Barefoot Contessa, Ina Garten, um, and that kind of um, personality and the sort of friend showing you a technique becomes a real, more, much more intimate feeling network than when you have these highly trained chefs like Tyler Florence and Bobby Flay and Mario Batali, great personalities, but trained chefs. And, and you know, it became, I write about in the early days, there was this trend pieces were being written about chef hunks or chunks, you know, these handsome chefs that women were into. But by the early 2000s, it was about, you know, sexy female chefs in the kitchen. And Rachel Ray was posing in FHM magazine in bra and panties, believe it or not. What's happened to Food Network today? I mean, you you touched on it a moment ago in terms of the challenge, the economic challenges it faces, the way that that it has been displaced by so much of technology and and sort of the creative destruction that has changed a lot of things. Where, where does where does it sit today? What what are its challenges that it that it thinks it can overcome? Well. First of all, it is just like the cigarette manufacturers. It has found that exporting, you know, foreign markets are good ones. And so it's starting food networks all over the world. You know, you can get food network content in Ulaanbaatar. But it's also having a problem creating new stars. And it's not just the changes in technology. Guy Fieri won uh, Next Food Network Star in 2008. And uh, he, is, he is really the last... Um, household name that this network created. It used to just, every two months, it used to create a new household name. And it's lost that formula. And I would argue, by putting shows on, I mean, first of all, the last guy that won Food Network Star, uh, it turns out, was blogging negative things about Food Network personalities, some of which were pretty lewd. And he's now not going to have a show on Food Network. He, you know, they, they wasted this entire opportunity. So, they're, they've lost this formula that they had, and I think by putting shows on like Cutthroat Kitchen or, you know, hidden camera restaurant, uh, you know, sneak shows where they hire fake employees to roll kegs out the back, and it, it's changed what was a really sweet network with sweet programming um, into this kind of like carnival that even though they still get ratings, even though they still make some money, ratings are down, 
And I think they're polluting the brand. I think they're, you know, they're hurting the seed corn. Um, and, you know, everything has its day. Uh, and the last 20 years, the last 10 especially, 15 have been great for Food Network. And maybe people are just ready to go on to something else and there's nothing that can be done. Personally, I'd like to see them go down fighting, being who they are at their best, providing sweet programming with uh, charming personalities, stuff you want to watch in the gym, beautiful people making beautiful things, and not so much negativity. Of course, a lot of that is being replaced by YouTube videos and YouTube yeah. creating its own stars and celebrities online and a lot of quality food sites that have sprung up over the years, like the you know, Amanda Hesser site and, and, and many yeah. others that, that really are replacing a lot of what, what Food Network was doing. There is nothing they can do about that. That's true. Um, you know, even, even of course, other television networks like Bravo with Top Chef and um, but the Food Network has a great website that has, you know, a huge following, and um, there are there's no question. There's challenges. Listen, you know, people are listening to satellite radio more. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm doing a lot of radio interviews, and is it reaching what it used to? Everything's changing, uh, which is why you know most brand counselors would tell you, you know, stick with who you are, uh, you know, and fight that fight that way. And I just wish Food Network would. Of course, the one thing that's not changing, or at least not fundamentally changing, is that people are still very interested in food. People are still cooking. I mean, the the, the core purpose, the core fun- function is still very much alive. Well, it is, but, you know, at its best, Food Network created some really groundbreaking television. And so it's not just, obviously, there's an appetite for food, but... um a show like Good Eats, which was Alton Brown's, you know, sort of science meets food show, and the original Iron Chef Japan, which was this competition show that created a pressure cooker whose goal was to drive artistic, creative people to new heights under the, you know, the time and the, the mayhem of that. And th- there was something really groundbreaking about those shows, and this was before Food Network was making money. Mm-hmm. You know, and and just like what happens, they start making billions, and they get conservative, and they start stop taking chances, um, and so you don't see that kind of groundbreaking television. It's not just about food; it's about what's going to entertain you in new ways. And you know, as crazy as like Duck Dynasty is, or you know, Pawn Stars, and this other stuff, people still tune in for that. They still want to see it, and. You know, Food Network, instead of taking chances and being bold, it's just waiting for, um, you know, producers to walk in with some brilliant pitch, which chances are they're not going to go for because they're just trying to protect the empire they have rather than trying new things. Talk a little bit about some of the other food programming, and you touched on it a moment ago. You were talking about Top Chef and a few of the other things, that other networks are really co-opting a lot of this. There's a lot of other interesting food programming that really has grown out of Food Network but is now being pushed to different limits by other stations, other networks. Well, even PBS, which was the sort of banner for the you know, the staid old cooking show, it has this thing, Mind of a Chef, which is really a great and interesting show. Um, and you look at Anthony Bourdain, people forget that his first show, A Cook's Tour, was on the Food Network. 
But the network, you know, got conservative and started telling Bourdain, well, we want you to focus on barbecue joints in the South. We want you to stop, you know, eating cobra hard in South America and going up the Mekong River Delta. And he told them to go to hell. You know, and now he's got this great show, Parts Unknown, on CNN. Um, and he's still breaking ground, and people still still like what he's doing. And, you know, the president of the Food Network now says her biggest mistake was not coming up with an immediate match, you know, to compete with Top Chef on Bravo when it started. But the truth is, that's an expensive show to produce, Top Chef. It shows a real grittiness in the kitchen, you know, these tattooed chefs who are really passionate and fighting and... I don't think at the time Food Network had the guts to try something like that. They were still, you know, making a lot of money off of, you know, the Barefoot Contessa and Giada De Laurentiis. And again, I just can't come back and back and back. It's, you know, when I wrote the book, I really wanted to open it with this poem ode, you know, by Arthur O'Shaughnessy, which you can actually see Gene Wilder um, as Willy Wonka say in the first uh, Willy Wonka movie. And it's about, we are the dreamers of dreams. And, you know, it's those who take chances. It's those who don't always cash in. You know, the guy who started Food Network, the guy whose first idea it was, got nothing almost for it. He got like a hundred grand in the severance package. Um, it's you don't always make bank for being the creative type, but there's a reward to it. And you know, there's a lack of soulfulness that is why scripts and why Food Network isn't you know, creating these interesting shows. And, of course, just like how there's now Fox Sports 1 and there's NBC Sports are competing with ESPN, and, you know, ESPN showed the way, and Food Network showed the way, created a new genre, so people are copying it. And that's inevitable. Um, so what else can you say? Innovate or die. That's the motto for, for them as well as everybody else. You know, it's up to us who are the, who you know writing the books and doing the creative work and just you know, and I believe this. You know, I somehow I always seem to make a living no matter what crazy project I try next because I'm always just you know going with, with what interests me and I'm not trying to just like cynically calculate how to make money. That never works. Alan Salkin, his book is From Scratch: The Uncensored History of the Food Network. Alan, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. It's a treat, Jeff. Happy to talk to you. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.